The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, and welcome. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. And you are good looking this morning, and there's a lot of you, so welcome. We are in the process of planning to plant another church uh, on the Illinois side of the river, and so hopefully by this time next year, we'll have a church planted over there, and if you reside in Moline, we would love for you to meet with that congregation or that parish on that side of the river. We're playing, obviously, God willing, we're not in charge of this, but we're working hard to um, follow the Lord's leading if this is how, um, how he's leading us and if this is what he wants us to do. So we uh, welcome you this morning. And as everyone has said, Ben has already said, uh, no special Easter sermon this morning. Uh, this is uh, scene 56 of the last sermons, I think. I'm guessing, I don't know how many sermons there have been, but there's been a lot of sermons. And this is uh, pretty much the second to last in uh, the Gospel of Mark, pretty much the last one going verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, through this book of, of, um, of Mark. And that's what we do. At Sacred City Church, um, we just go verse by verse, word by word, line by line, through books of the Bible, and we teach you uh, that way. It's called expository preaching. And the reason we've been going through the Gospel of Mark is because the Gospel of Mark is actually the oldest of all the Gospels. It's dated uh, about 20 years um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that means um, you could talk to people, the eyewitnesses, and indeed, uh, Mark is written by Mark, but it's uh, the eyewitness of Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And so the Gospel of Mark, uh, let's just think of Mark as the reporter and Peter as the eyewitness, and Mark is interviewing Peter, and Peter is giving his account of the life and times of Jesus, and Mark is writing it down and recording it for us. And I'll talk about this a lot last or next week, but this was written down on papyrus, um, and it's, that's really old piece of paper basically a parchment, and it's been copied since then, and, and we're going to talk about next week, how can we trust that what we have today um, is actually what was written in the original. And today, interestingly enough, after a year and a half of being in this book, we come to the most outrageous part of the Gospel of Mark, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, for my conversations with people I have learned that most people are really confused when it comes to the resurrection, right? Is it just a myth? Is it just kind of like a, 
you know, a myth that adopted from a lot of different places, kind of like the springtime, look outside, the trees are dead and they come alive. It's just like a myth for life and death. Or was it a fiction created by the disciples of Jesus to trick people into starting a new religion, right? Religion's oftentimes viewed as like a grasp at power. Were these disciples just wanting to build a new religion to, to get some power in the society? Is that what they were doing? Or is the idea of resurrection just another way of saying that there's life after death, right? Is resurrection just life after death? Or, or does it have a more significant meaning? Is there a deeper meaning? Is there, does it mean more than just that? Well, I, I attempt to answer those questions from our text today. I'm going to do it quickly, as quickly as I can. From this text, we have a few things to do. We have evidence to examine. That's what I want us to do first. We're going to examine some evidence. We have a message to embrace. And then out of this, if we embrace this message, we have a new mission to live. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to examine some evidence. We're hopefully going to embrace a new message, and then we're going to have a new mission to live. That's where we're going. So let's begin. Let's jump right in by examining some evidence. Okay, first off, in the last chapter, we learned that Jesus was dead and then entombed. This was confirmed by an expert executioner, the Roman centurion. A pagan man was not a, a Christian at the time. He was in charge of the whole execution. He had executed hundreds, if not thousands before. In all the histories of executions, which we have thousands of, of documentary evidence outside of the Bible of people being crucified, no one ever lived through crucifixion. Crucifixion has a 100% death rate. Jesus Christ was dead. Pilate... The Roman governor confirmed this with the Roman centurion before granting his corpse to Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish leader, to hastily prepare it for burial. That was in the last chapter. So first off, any notion that Jesus only fainted on the cross or he passed out or he lost consciousness only to regain it later is just false. The scourging and crucifixion killed Jesus. No one ever lived through crucifixion. Then this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, was granted permission to take down the body of Jesus from the cross, and he put him in this own tomb. He put him in this new tomb that he had just had constructed before sundown on Friday night. That was when the Jewish Sabbath would begin. It lasted from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, and no work was to be done during that time. It was meant to be a day of worship. So this meant that Joseph had to rush the burial process of Jesus. And the ladies that have been following Jesus wherever he goes decide to go to the tomb early Sunday morning after the Sabbath is over and finish anointing him with spices. They didn't embalm the dead. They just um, anointed them and, and made them fragrant. And basically, if you walked into this tomb, there's this big opening. You walk into this tomb and there's a table there, a stone table. They would lay the body there. They would anoint it. And then it would decompose there. And then once it decomposed, they would come back a year later, however long it was later, they would gather the bones, they would go through a smaller, about a two-foot uh, hole, basically entrance into this other part, and they would, they would house the bones of all the relatives in that spot, leaving the table open for the next person in the family to die. And these women on this morning go, okay, we're going to go anoint the body of Jesus. Now let's look. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could, might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And this is funny. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It seems they, in their haste, they forgot to think about or they hadn't thought about there's this huge stone that's been, that's been rolled and it sits down into a notch and it's impossible for one or two women to be, able to, to be able to move this stone to get into the entrance. And Pilate had sent Roman guards to, to guard it and to make sure it was sealed and there was no way they were going to be able to break that seal. Now, what's interesting about this is this is one of those details, okay, that really adds nothing to the story. And this is some of the evidence that we need to examine this morning. See, in Jesus' day and age, this isn't how you told a story, right? Now, today we have this whole new genre of literature called historical fiction, where we find details like these that make the story seem more real. But in Jesus' day and age, there was no genre of literature called historical fiction. And in fact, C.S. Lewis, who was an agnostic and he was an expert in literature and mythology at Cambridge University, this is what he writes, okay? He became a Christian later in his life, but this is what he writes. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, pretty close to the facts, so a reporter reporting facts, or else it's some un, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative so lewis is saying that either mark invented a whole new genre of literature in the second century or these details are evidence that proves this indeed is an eyewitness account right? The women, this doesn't add anything to the story. On the way, they're like, oh yeah, who's going to open the tomb, right? It doesn't move the story forward at all. It's unneeded evidence, something that if you're asking an eyewitness, he's going to say, right? But let's not stop there. We've got more evidence to examine. Verse four, and looking up, when they get there, they see the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, details. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Okay, more details. A young man, dressed in white, sitting on which side? That's very important for us to remember. No, it's not, right? What'd you learn? I learned that there was a dude there and he, you know, on Sunday morning. What'd you learn at church today? Well, I learned there's this guy who entered the tomb. He was sitting on the right side. What, is that important? I'm not sure. No, it's not. It's an unneeded detail that an eyewitness would say. Right? As they're telling the story back, that's, this is what they would say. Now, let me just tell you, first off, the, what is this young dude dressed in white? This is an angel. Okay? Other, the other gospels confirm this, that this is an angel. The word angel literally means messenger. And many times angels appear in scripture and they just look like normal humans. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us as Christians not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some of us have thereby entertained angels unaware. So angels have a, an ability to look like human beings. And that's kind of what's going on in the story. But we know it's an angel because, well, first off, these ladies freak out, right? They, they and that's my uh, theological term right here. They freak out. They were alarmed. Verse six, 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. That's one of the first things angels always say. When an angel shows up in text, the first thing they say is fear not, right? Because they freak everybody out. So he says this, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Actually, the Greek text there says he has been raised. Jesus didn't do it on his own power. God himself raised him from the dead. He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, this is interesting. First, well, let me, let me just finish reading that, that right there. But go, the, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They freaked out. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. End the gospel of Mark. Now, let me just throw this out for you to chew on for a little bit. This is where the gospel of Mark ends. This is how the story ends. We've been going through it for over 15 months and this is how the first gospel writer ends his narrative of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples are nowhere to be found. They're hiding somewhere. All the men are gone, right? They're not expecting Jesus to come back to life. They're not sitting there waiting. When's it gonna happen? When's it gonna happen? Here we go, here we go, can't wait. The ladies don't believe the angel. The angel says, fear not, go and tell. The ladies freak out, run and hide. Is this how you, you know, is this how you want to end the story here? If you're going to, if you're writing, let's just think, put ourselves in the apostles' shoes. If you're writing a narrative, you're, writing, you're inventing a new religion and you're trying to gain power in society and you want to start a brand new religion from scratch, right? Is this how you end your gospel? And the ladies that saw the angel took off and ran and hide and they didn't say anything, right? This isn't how you start a new religion if you're trying to do that. No one but an unnamed angel believes, actually believes that Jesus rose from the dead at this point. The end. Roll the credits. We all give it a rotten tomato for an ending. Right? But if you've been following along with us, this is actually a sign that this story is true. Because Mark has been showing all along that people are slow to believe, that we are sinners down in our court. We're literally born sinful, and so it's hard for us to believe. We're separated from God, and we, it takes a miracle for us to believe. Mark's been showing this on and on and on. And for those of us who think, well, you know what, well, the reason this got started is because those people were gullible back then. They were less scientific they were less educated, and they were gullible. First off, again, C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. That's literally thinking because we're born in this day and age, we're smarter and we're more educated and we get how things really are better than people back then. And it's just not true. See, we have cultural limitations that limit us 
to believe this. Uh, we think that miracles can't happen. Many of us, we think everything can be explained by science. We believe we've never seen anyone come back for the dead, so we think it's, it's a physical impossibility. And therefore, we say, because, listen, this is our, we, we view this as implausible. The resurrection is implausible because I, I know scientifically no person can come back from death. So because I know that, because I believe in science, supposedly, I believe that no human being can come back to life, therefore this must not be true. Well, what's interesting is in Jesus' day and age, they had their own implausibility structure. They had their own arguments that they believed that limited them in believing the resurrection. Primarily, the Jewish people, first off, believed that there would be a future resurrection. One day at the end of time, God would resurrect all of God's people, and there would be this far off. No one ever thought of someone in this day and age, or in their current time, actually being resurrected to live forever. It was beyond them. And secondly, no human being could claim to be God. Any human being Uh, who claimed to be God was a heretic. There's only one God. God is one. God cannot be father and son. God cannot be more than one, right? And the the Christian belief is God is a trinity. He's father, son, Holy Spirit in one essence, three persons in one essence, right? So the Jewish people, Jesus could not be the son of God. They, They could not believe that, right? They couldn't believe it because God is one. So it was very hard for the Jewish people to, to actually believe in the resurrection. They, they didn't believe in it. And secondly, the, the, the Greeks, the Romans at the time, they believed that the body was actually bad, that the body was dirty, and they didn't, so they, you know, any belief in a physical resurrection where a person would get a physical body was disgusting to them. They thought when you died, you became a pure spirit. Right? The physical world is bad, it holds us back, and in the spiritual world, that's the real world. And many of them, many of, you know, many, actually many Americans get their idea of resurrection from this Greek notion, not from the scriptures. Many people think that Jesus died and then he went to heaven. He just rose and went to heaven like as a spirit. See, the resurrection is not life after death. That's not the resurrection. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says the resurrection is life after, life after death. And let me explain that. Jesus was resurrected. What that means is his spirit or soul re-entered into his physical body in such a way that it changed his physical body. His physical body was recreated. It became incorruptible. It became unkillable. It became perfect forever. It was more than just flesh and blood, but it wasn't any less than flesh and blood. His disciples would later on in the story come to him, and Thomas says, I don't believe it. Let me touch the scars. And Jesus' perfect body had holes in his hands, and they could touch him, and he would eat. He ate with them, and he sat in a chair. He was not a spirit. He was a new physical human being right? Newly created, perfect, to never die again, to live forever as this new physical, in this new physical body. Now listen, this is unheard of to Jewish people. They would completely reject this notion. This is unheard of to Greeks and Roman people. They would completely reject this notion. And yet this idea took over the Roman empire in less than 250 years. How does that happen? It happens when there's a real resurrection, 
And Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, which is the oldest document that we have, one of the oldest documents we have in the New Testament, that's just around 20 years after the death of Jesus. He say Jesus Christ appeared to people over 40 days and they could touch him and they could see him and over 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus. Now you can't trick people into believing in a resurrection. People, what, let me see him. You, you, right? Like, let me see the guy. Okay, here he is. Right? For 40 days, you had eyewitnesses, over 500 touch, listen, see, feel Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is what flipped the whole plausibility structure of the Roman Empire and the Jewish, and the Jewish people on its head. The only way I can believe in a resurrection is if eyewitness see it and touch it and feel it in that day and age. And that took the world by storm. 500 eyewitnesses. And then here's, this, here's the last piece of evidence for us to look at. I mentioned it briefly last week, but it's worth mentioning again. And guys, there's a lot more evidence. This is just from our text today. Who are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? Women. Now, in Jewish society, at, the, at this time when it was written, the testimony of women wasn't even admissible in court. We have one um, historian and one uh, early church, or not church, early leader that made this into a mockery for Christianity. He laughed, this made him laugh at Christianity. He says this, he, he's laughing at Christians saying the resurrection from quote was from quote, the gossip of women. See, he heard that it came from women and he dismissed it because at, that, at this time that it was written, the, the, the testimony of women was just dismissible, right? Second class citizens at the most. He's saying, I don't believe in the resurrection because everybody knows women are just foolish gossips. You can't trust a woman. See, if the gospel, listen to this, if the gospel writers wanted to invent a story at this day and age and start a new religion, they never would have had the first witnesses, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb be women. Never. But they were. Why? Because Jesus sees men and women as equal, right? Right? Because, and this is where we get the equality of the sexes in our society today. It didn't come from any liberal ideas. It came from Christianity that says man and woman are both made in the image of God. Right? Jesus himself shows up to women. They're the first testimony. He showed up to the apostles later. He showed up to many people later. So, here's the evidence that we need to examine that I want to talk about. That we just did, right? Three times in the last three paragraphs, Jesus, shows up, Jesus talks about women. And the women were the first eyewitnesses to the account of Jesus. If this was written, as many people, as some you know, people try to discredit that it was written to convince people, they never would have had women be the first to show up at the tomb. Second, the prevailing cultural unbelief surrounding resurrection, Jew and Greek, were both flipped on its head. Completely changed the idea of resurrection in the early time. 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 witnesses saw him, touched him. You can't convince people, right, if it didn't really happen during that day. Uh, the fear and unbelief of the women. Hilarious. Who wants this to be? So this is what happened. Like, if I'm telling the story, this is where I changed the story just a little bit. And everybody else took off running, but I stood there and said, yeah, I believe. Like, if, if I'm the eyewitness, that's how I, I'm on myself to look good. But these women tell the story, and what? We all took off, freaked out, didn't tell anybody. And it's not until Jesus shows up and is like, What's up? And they're like, oh yeah, sorry. 
We didn't believe it, right? It's not until he shows up to them that they actually confess and they actually do it. Then what else? The hiding disciples. Look, think about the disciples. If you're trying to start a new religion, where were you guys at? The ladies were at the tomb. Where were you? See, what happened was, <laughs> right? They're hiding. They're fear for their lives. They don't want to be crucified like Jesus. They don't want to go down like he did. And then lastly, the anticlimactic ending that leaves us all with more questions. This actually is a sign that it's authentic. It's not sentimental. This is what really happened. They left doubting and the story ends. So this is some evidence that we need to examine. It's not all the evidence. There's plenty more evidence I could talk about, but I don't have time today. But what I really want to speak on is the next point. We, because of this evidence, we now have a message to embrace. Look what the angel says in verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now this is a message of grace. C.S. Lewis one time, I'm, I'm on a C.S. Lewis quick kick, I don't know why, but I am, it's coming out of my head. There's a lot of guys debating uh, all these different religions, world religions, what makes them different, what's the same, and they couldn't quite find an answer. What makes Christian, Christianity different than all the other world religions? And C.S. Lewis walked in the room and he said, oh, that's easy, it's grace. Grace is what makes Christianity different from every single religion around the world, and this is where we see it. Listen, what does he say? The angel says, go, tell them, Jesus is coming for them. Now, now when I hear that, right, that, that's not warm fuzzies in my heart. Because if I'm a disciple and I've been hiding, when I hear Jesus is coming, I think, oh no, I'm in trouble, right? But he says, go, he's gonna show up, he's coming to them. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm forgiving you before you ask for it. You're in hiding and I will show up. I will see you again. I'm coming to forgive you that I've already died on the cross and paid for your sins and I've risen and I've given you new life. I have new life and I'm giving you new life and I'm coming to forgive you. I'm coming because I love you. Jesus is forgiving his hiding and faithless disciples before they can even ask for it. They think he's dead Right now in this moment, they believe he was an imposter and his ministry is over, and yet Jesus still loves them. And he's already making it possible for them to repent and turn to him. He says, you will see me. But there's something even more shocking in this message. And it's, we need to embrace it, and it's this, it's this word Peter. Isn't it interesting? He says, go tell your disciples and Peter. Now, why do you think he would say that? Tim Keller says, I think he says that because if Peter's hanging out with the disciples and he says, hey, Jesus is here. He wants to meet us. All the disciples, come on. Peter's going to go. He doesn't want to see me. Why? Just hours before, Peter said, I'll never betray you. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll go to death with you. And what happened? He betrayed him over and over 
He turned his back on him. When Jesus was at his most helpless, Peter abandoned him and Peter ran away from him. Peter denied even knowing him. What would happen? Peter sees his life flash before his eyes. He sees Jesus get arrested and he's going to be beaten. And he says, I don't want to die. What was I believing? Something was wrong with what I was believing. I must have made a mistake. I don't want to die. I don't want to be arrested. He counts his own life as more valuable than the life of Jesus. And he abandons him. He denies he even knows him. So Peter knows he's an absolute failure. See, this is the key message that we must embrace this morning. Jesus is saying to Peter and to us by extension, if you'll believe it, even at your greatest failure, even at the moment where you are at your lowest and everything around you is dark, I want you. I love you. I forgive you. Manhattan pastor Tim Keller goes on to say, because Peter's screw up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. And his grasp of grace will therefore be the greatest. And that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in this new Jesus movement. See, this is the way that the king, Jesus, rules his kingdom. It's the way of grace. It's completely opposite the way of the world and the way of every other religion. The world says only the strong survive. Only those who are good enough get to heaven. Here's the list of do's and don'ts. You better let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and if you do enough good things, then you will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not the way of Jesus. See, Every other religion says only those who obey the rules and stay morally strong will get into his kingdom. But Jesus flips that whole concept on his head and he says, no, not in my kingdom, only the weak enter. A man was recently killed for his faith this, this week or this month in Syria. And he said, you do what you're good at, killing, and I'll do what I'm good at dying. What's he saying? You kill for your faith. I show my faith by the way I die. That blew my mind as I read it this week. See, this is what grace does to a person. Only those, only the screw-ups Only those who recognize their need, recognize their failure, recognize that they're not good enough and they haven't been good enough to enter into God's kingdom, only those will come to Jesus for grace. Those are the ones who are saved. Those are the ones who get into Jesus' kingdom and taste the future joy of a resurrection like his. This is what we call the gospel. It's the good news. Jesus Christ was raised And so those who put their faith in him, we do more than just examine the evidence. We must let the evidence show us the message of the gospel and we must believe that message and embrace that message for ourselves. We must believe it. Jesus was perfect where we're not. He deserved exalted and worshiped, but instead he took our place on the cross and became us, became sin for us so that Christ crushed and ki- God crushed and killed Christ 
and thereby killing death, killing sin, and killing its consequences. And when we put our faith in him, the good deeds of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is counted on our behalf. It's a divine transaction. It's a divine exchange. My sin goes to Christ and Christ's righteousness goes to me and now I'm counted righteous in Christ and this is a message of grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And so what does it do? It humbles me and it fills me with joy and it fills me with gratitude. You know what's incredible? We, we see this. See this message of grace? Go, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter. I remember, can you just imagine Peter sitting there and all the disciples, he's back, he's alive. And, and Peter's like, not, not for me. And they say, go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter, he, he wants me? The, the biggest screw up of the bunch, the one who denied you and ran away from you at your weakest moment, he wants, he wants to see me? And you know what happens? This experience of grace Peter experiences a complete metamorphosis. After Peter's encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he becomes a totally new man. He becomes one of the boldest and fearless preachers of the gospel, right? He goes on to preach the gospel, to build the church. He's one of the strongest leaders. Church history says that when it was time of his death, that, that this man, Peter, so he didn't, get, he didn't start this new religion to get power. At the time of his death, they were gonna crucify him. They said they're gonna crucify him like they crucified his Lord. And he says, no, don't do it. I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. Do it upside down. And he died a death crucified upside down. So you're telling me these disciples invented a religion so they could get themselves killed? not even intellectually plausible. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can humble us to the grave and make us meek and mild and kind and gentle and yet exalt us to the heaven and fill us with boldness to die like this. See, this is one of the things that resurrection teaches us. Resurrection teaches us you can kill my body, but I'm coming back again. George Herbert, a poet, says this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him for me just a gardener. You can kill me and put me in the ground, but you're just planting me for a future resurrection. And I come back better than where I came from. Later on in his life, Peter wrote 1 Peter. And second Peter. And Peter says this about the gospel in verse one, or chapter one, verse 12. He says, the gospel is so magnificent that even angels long to look into it. That angels look down at the gospel that God sent his one and only son to die for sinful, die for sinful human beings, and then he was raised to new life to give new life to these sinful human beings so they could have life everlasting and new life now. And the angels look into it and they go, whoa. Angels are blown away by it. And this brings me to my last point as I close. For those of us who examine the evidence and then we embrace this message of the gospel that it's the grace of Jesus Christ that saves us and gives us new life, it also gives us a new mission to live. The Apostle Paul, who's another example of a life that's 
experiences a metamorphosis, a complete change. He's one of the strongest Jewish opponents to Christianity, literally having Christians killed, having Christians killed in the first century. And he meets the resurrected Jesus Christ and he becomes the chief apostle. He becomes the preacher of the preachers and he writes two thirds of the New Testament, right? This doesn't just happen unless you see the resurrected Jesus Christ. But Paul says in Ephesians 1.10 that Jesus' mission was this, quote, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, listen to this, to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now this is, this is where you're like, okay, this, I'm saying it's probably gonna happen. His mission is to unite things in heaven with things on earth, right? We already talked about the Greek notion, heaven is good, earth is bad, Jesus' plan isn't Greek, okay? Jesus wasn't a, no, I'm not gonna do that. He's coming to unite heaven and earth. Jesus began that work, now hear this, in the resurrection. In the resurrection, heaven, the spirit world, his spirit became new flesh and was united in a new way and the process and the power of new creation began in Jesus. Jesus is something totally unique. He's walking the earth for 40 days. He's perfectly spirit. He's perfectly soul. He's perfectly pure and he's perfectly human all at once. Nothing else in all of creation is like Jesus. He's unkillable. He can walk through walls and sit on a chair. He can eat food and taste it with new created taste buds. I wonder what that tasted like. Jesus shows us by this that the physical world that God created is still good and it still matters. Our physical bodies still matter. We aren't just going to heaven when we die. Salvation is about far more than that. It's about the complete renewal of the whole world. In Revelation 21, you see when Jesus Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, heaven is coming down out of the sky and the earth is coming up to meet her and all of the galaxy and all of the universe and all of the earth is recreated with this new creation stuff. For those of you who are bored with this platonic idea of heaven. We float off in a cloud and we play harps all day and we sit around singing with our angelic voices. You should be bored with that. It's not biblical at all. Everything you enjoy in this physical earth will be in heaven, including music and entertainment and sports and animals and all these things because God created an earth good. It fell and it was, it was decreated in a sense and it went bad, but Jesus Christ at the resurrection started the process of new creation. He shows with his physical body. It might still have scars, but it's coming back brand new and you will enjoy it. That's what's coming. And so it shows us as Christians, this physical earth matters. What we do in this life matters. What does that mean for us? When he comes back, the the work he started in the resurrection, the whole earth is going to experience a resurrection. Our physical bodies will get out of the grave. Everything will be recreated. And what does that mean for us? That means for everyone who embraces the message of the gospel, we have work to do now. We have a mission to live. We are to share this gospel message and the message of the resurrection and we are to work at making this place a better place to live. We are to build hospitals and make art. You ever wonder why 
almost every hospital has a Christian name because Christians get the resurrection. Because everything's gonna be remade and everything's gonna be recreated, we work really hard at making this physical world a better place to live. We take care of the weak. We take care of those with Down syndrome. We take care of those who are invalid. We take care of those in hospice care. We take care of those because we believe the physical life matters and our physical bodies matter. Some of the greatest art in the history of the world has been made by Christians. Why? Because Jesus, God is creative and God gives us the gifts of creativity. We're to care for the sick and make beautiful music. We are to care for the environment and fight to protect the lives of unborn children. We are to help people live healthier lives and work to make our cities better places to live. We do this because this world and our work matters to God. The resurrection shows us that Jesus cares about the everyday world that we live in and our everyday lives. Whether you're policing the streets or changing diapers, it matters to God. This is why Christians should be the hardest working people in our country, in our world for justice. We should be standing up for racial equality. We should be working hard for educational reform. And we should be reaching out to immigrants in our city because this is what Jesus has done for us. This physical world matters to God. And it matters to us. Think about this. This blows my mind. There's a physical man standing in heaven right now. Not a spiritual man right? Obi-Wan comes back, right? Little hologram. That's what most of us think of the resurrection. That is not the resurrection, right? It's kind of Obi-Wan. That's less than Obi-Wan. Like he's glitching in and out, right? That's not resurrection. Physical body here, touch touch. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God with flesh on in the presence of God. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that's almost heretical in the Old Testament. Flesh, no one can see God and live. God is so other, God is so transcendent, God is so pure and holy and powerful. Any flesh in his presence would just be incinerated. It's like having a conversation with the Son. And yet Jesus Christ in his new created body stands at the right hand of God forever testifying that flesh matters. And God is going to give us a new body and a new earth to enjoy him and enjoy our families, enjoy our friends, and enjoy grace forever. But let us not forget, the only way into this new eternity and this new life is if you embrace the message of the gospel. Listen, I know we have this idea in America that if you just be a pretty good person, that God will look down and go, oh, you're pretty good, you should go to heaven. But if God really sent his one and only son to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death, do you really think there's another way to enter his kingdom if God went that far? He should have just been like, well, I'll let all the pretty good boys and pretty good girls in. That's not what he did. He's holy and just and righteous. He punished his son so he doesn't have to punish you, but we must embrace the gospel to enter into it. And God, when you embrace the gospel and you believe in Jesus Christ, he not only gives you this hope for the future, but he changes your life in the here and now. He gives you a new family. He gives you a new community. He changes you from the inside out. You become more humble and more holy, more more bold and more humble at the same time, more kind of self-aware. 
become more self-aware. I'm more aware of my sins and my failures and my flaws. But at the same time, you become more self-forgetful. It doesn't really matter. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis, there we go, says, if you ever met a truly humble person, you wouldn't know it. All you would know is that person really was into me. See, humble people just ask questions, just get to know people. They're not trying to prove themselves to anybody. They're not trying to let everybody know what they do or their accomplishments or where they graduated from or how much money they make or what car they drive or what neighborhood they live in. Truly humble people are just interested in other people. And the gospel humbles us because it tells us we're worse than we ever thought. Down at our core, we're sinners that run from God. But it also elevates us to the heavens because it tells us you're more loved than you could ever imagine that Christ died for you willingly. That's the message we want you to to believe and embrace this morning at Sacred City. It's the only message to truly change you and truly empower you to be world changers in our world today. Every single member at Sacred City serves in some way in our community. We serve nonprofits every single month, every member of Sacred City. This isn't just a message we believe. This is something, this is a mission that we're a part of. We want to make our city more like the city to come, more like heaven, right? We can't accomplish that without Christ but we want to be working for it. And we invite you, join us in that mission. Let me pray. Father, you are the only storyteller who would write a story like this. You are the only God in the history of all the so-called gods who entered your own story and you didn't do so in power and glory, murdering your enemies. You came weak and lowly, and humble, and you let your enemies murder you. And in the act of death, you defeated death. And you took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and you championed over them. And for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they will experience a new life, a new life in this life now, and a new life in the life to come. And we long for that and we look for that. We want this world. We ache for this world. And the violence and the division and the racism and the poverty to be defeated once and for all. And we know that it does. It has an expiration date. When Christ comes back, the kingdom will be consummated and all things will be new. Jesus, you said yourself in Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. Even us. Would you make us new today? By the power of Christ, we pray. Amen.